points this out very clearly, and I think I have this on the screen. Perfect. And he is before all things, Paul writes, and in him, speaking of Christ, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is in charge of the church, and by extension, Jesus is in charge of this church. He is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor of the church. But as we saw last week, as we heard prayed this morning, Jesus has delegated his authority, like Moses, to under-shepherds. To the elders, to the pastors, to the overseers. Again, these, these terms are used interchangeably to describe this office, the leadership of the church. But, but don't be confused with this. I want to show you in the scriptures how these terms are, are all mixed together and used to describe one office. An, an elder is a pastor, is a shepherd, is an overseer. All of these words describe one role, one office. So let me show you an example. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey, and he's about to leave Ephesus. He's been there for a couple of years, and he's been, he's been raising up leaders in the church, and he's been investing in them, and he, he knows he's leaving. He has to leave, and he knows that he's never going to come back. And so what he does is he gathers the elders of the Ephesian church to give them one last message. And again, I want you to see how, how all these terms flow with each other. He says this in Acts 20.17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So here come the leaders of the church. And he says a lot of things to them. But in verse 28 of chapter 20, he says this. Now notice the language. He tells this to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care, or the word there is to shepherd, to pastor, to, to pastor for the church of God, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So you can already see how the language is mixed. These are the elders, and he's telling the elders, God, God has made you overseers so that you can pastor the church that Christ obtained with his own blood. The elders are the overseers, and they are to pastor, shepherd the flock of God. You can see how, how, how they're used interchangeably. Leading, pastoring, shepherding, overseeing, being an elder are all the job of this one office. We call it pastor, call it elder. And there's another text that shows this as well. We, we saw it a little bit last week and we'll see it again next week. But 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 4 says this. So I exhort the elders among you. So he's talking to the elders. And then he goes on. Skip a couple Lines. He says, shepherd, or again, pastor the flock of God that is among you. Well, how are they going to do that? Exercising oversight. So that's the same Greek word as overseer. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So again, the elders are to pastor by exercising, exercising oversight. That's how they'll shepherd. That's how they'll lead the church. This is what we see in the scriptures. Elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd. These terms are all used to describe the same office, the same role. And so the Bible is our authority in the church. And the Bible says that the office of pastor or elder is the office of leadership in the church under the leadership of Christ. 
That, that is clear from these texts. That this is, this is the office of elder. Again, you could call it pastor. But the obvious question then becomes, what is this supposed to look like in the church? I mean, how, how, how many elders are supposed to be in any one church? How many pastors are there supposed to be? And, and how do we know who to appoint as a pastor? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning digging into this question. So I want to start with the first half. How many elders are supposed to be in any one church? How many pastors should a church have? Should it be a senior pastor and some staff, kind of like the CEO model? A senior pastor and some deacons? What should it look like? Well, the Bible tells us. And the answer is is pretty clear. Each church should be led by a group of biblically qualified pastors. Biblically qualified elders. This is the model of the churches in the New Testament. It's also the historic Baptist model, and it's also the most practical model. And so I want to walk through those three things and, and show you this. So first, the biblical model. Every church we see in the New Testament has elders, a plurality of elders. Not one church that we see in the New Testament has only one elder or one pastor. There's not one passage in the scriptures that describe a church being led by one man. Every church is led by a group of elders. A, a mixed team of, of paid and unpaid pastors that lead the church together. Pastors, elders, the term is always plural when speaking of the church leadership. Now we're not going to walk through every single passage in the scripture that has this, but I want to show you a few so you can kind of get a feel for the language that scripture uses when talking about the leadership of the church. And I think as we go through this, you'll see that this is pretty clear. So the first one I want you to see is, is in Acts 14, 21 through 23. And again, I have these on the screen. Um, we're going to run through some passages, so you don't need to turn to every single one. But the first thing we see is that when Paul planted churches, he left, when he left to go on to the next church, he would appoint a plurality, a group of elders in each individual church to lead them. He didn't just leave one man behind to lead. Acts 14, 21 through 23 says this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And now here's where it says it. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, so there's plural elders in each church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, after they had appointed a group of elders, they committed to them to the Lord and felt okay moving on to another church plant. The Jerusalem church also had a plurality of elders. Acts 15.4 says this, When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders of the church. And they declared all that God had done with them. So the Jerusalem church had apostles as well and a group of elders. The Ephesian church had a plurality of elders. Acts twenty seventeen. we saw this. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul writes to the same Ephesian church in the end of 1 Timothy, he says this, let the elders, plural, who are in your church, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor preaching and teaching. So again, there's plurality elders in the Ephesian 
church, both at the beginning stages and when Timothy was receiving this letter. The Philippian church had a plurality of elders. Philippians 1, verse 1, says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. Again, overseers, elders, same thing, plural. Not to the overseer and the deacons, but to the overseers. The Philippian church had a plurality of elders. The churches in Crete needed to have a plurality of elders. Titus is planting churches in the island of Crete, and Paul tells him, in, in the epistle to Titus that he's not done with the work until he has appointed elders in each town or in each church. Titus 1.5 says this, Paul writing to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town I directed you. So Titus is, Titus is like the apostle Paul. He would plant churches, stay there for a couple of years, then move on, plant another church, build it up a little bit, move on. Paul says, I told you to stay in Crete. In other words, don't move on yet because the work's not finished. To, to finish the work, you need to appoint elders for every town, for every church. This is critical to church planning in the New Testament. The last one I want to share with you is James 5, verse 14. James assumes that there's a plurality of elders in the church he's writing to. He says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the senior pastor, the pope, the bishop. No. Let him call for the elders of the church, plural. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. You see the, the, the weight of the biblical testimony. It's, it's always plural. And then there's even more passages we can turn to, but, but the, the evidence is clear. Every single church in the New Testament is either led by a group of elders, by a group of pastors, or is in need of getting them, Paul says. Every single one. There's, there's, there's no exceptions. Even when the apostles were in the church of Jerusalem, they had appointed a group of elders because they knew there wasn't always going to be apostles. But there would always be elders for every biblically faithful church. So this is, this is the biblical model, but it's also just the historic Baptist model. Every single Baptist confession of faith written before the year 1963 uses the term elders to describe the leaders of the church. Every single one. The Baptist faith and message now just says pastors and deacons, which is fine. Again, describing the same role. The very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson, says this. Each New Testament church had a plurality of elders. A plurality in the bishopric, which is just an old school term for eldership, is of great importance for mutual counsel and aid that the government and edification of the flock may be promoted in the best manner. So that's the first president of the SBC says you've got to have a plurality of elders for the benefit of the flock. So church leadership by a group of pastor elders is the biblical model. It's the historic Baptist model. But it also just makes sense practically. I mean, it's, it's almost like Christ structured his church this way for a reason. It's almost like he's the source of all wisdom or something, right? I'm being sarcastic just in case you don't know me. My wife always tells me, don't joke with people until they know you. Well, 
So, so let's think through a few, a, a few of the practical benefits of this model, of having a group of pastors in leadership of the church as opposed to like an all-powerful senior pastor CEO model and some staff or whatever. Well, the first thing is a plurality of elders protects the church from, having, from one person having ultimate authority in the church. There's only one person that has ultimate authority in the church. Jesus. Not, not the senior pastor. And with a group of elders in leadership, it prevents any one man from having sole authority. If one elder is abusing his authority, the other elders check him and can reel him back or get rid of him if need be. You see, a group of elders, a plurality of elders, a group of pastors provides accountability for each and every pastor. No one man has sole authority and is above accountability. I've heard too many stories, even in the last year, of these celebrity pastors who have gone above accountability. And look what happens. Bring shame upon the name of Christ and upon his church because they're not using the biblical model. Brings accountability. The plurality of elders also leads to stability in the church. So, so imagine two different churches in your mind. One is led by just a senior pastor who kind of has all the authority. You know, maybe has some staff, but he's the boss. He's the CEO. And another church is led by a group of faithful elders or a group of pastors. In both scenarios, the, the lead pastor commits adultery and disqualifies himself from leadership. Well, well, how does this play out in these two different scenarios? So in the first church, the one with the senior pastor, the CEO pastor, he gets fired. Okay, the people find out about it. They don't like that. They fire him. And now the church has no pastor. The church has no leadership. He, he was the leader. He had the vision. He led the church. Now the church is leadership. Leadership is leaderless and is scrambling for a new pastor, a new elder. They form a committee to search for a pastor. They take a while to find someone qualified and they, they find a new guy, but then he comes in with a bunch of new ideas and changes everything because the entire, the entire authority of the church is placed in the hands of one man. So when that man changes, everything changes in the church. And then when he leaves, something happens to him, he leaves, the next pastor comes in. New ideas. He changes everything. New vision. And on and on. And it's unstable. The church is always changing. Every time a new pastor comes, everything changes. Every time a pastor leaves or dies or something happens to him, there's a leadership vacuum in the church. I'm sure some of you have experienced this in churches you've been in. But, but now think about the second church. The one led by, by a plurality of elders or pastors. The lead pastor, he commits adultery, he dies, whatever. Something happens to him, so he's gone. Well, in this model, there's only a very small loss of leadership. There's no loss of vision because the vision was that of the elders, not just one man. The church still has a majority of its qualified leaders. The church still has a group of preachers, of pastors. This, the work of shepherding doesn't stop because one man's gone. The church goes on. The remaining elders, the remaining pastors continue the work of pastoring, shepherding, and leading the church. They're not even in a rush to appoint a new pastor because they're already, they just continue doing what they've done before. And when another elder is appointed, he isn't the sole leader. And so the church continues in the same direction. See the stability that that provides. This is why Paul tells Titus, look, before you leave, you have to appoint elders in the church. Otherwise, 
They're on shifting ground. That's the difference. You can see the wisdom of the biblical model. It provides stability. But a plurality of elders also just helps balance individual weaknesses. You see, every pastor, I know this is hard to believe, but every pastor has personal flaws and weaknesses. I know, I know. It's almost unbelievable, but it's true. Even pastors sin. We have sin. We have personality defects. And with the singular pastor model, what happens is those often become the defects and weaknesses of the church. As the pastor goes, so goes the church. But with the plurality model, each pastor is free to lead out of his strength because the other elders cover where he's weak. No one man has to bear the burden of being everything. Pastor Alexander Strauch puts it this way. I love this. Look what, listen to what he says. He says, If one elder has a tendency to act too harshly with people, the others can temper his harshness. If one elder is too passive and fearing confrontation, the others can help, him press, can help press him to action. Elders who are more doctrinally oriented can sharpen those who are more outreach or service oriented. And the outreach or service minded elders can ignite the intellectually oriented members to more evangelism and service. You see that balance. Again, this is the wisdom of the biblical model. It balances out our individual weaknesses. The plurality of elders also provides more and better shepherding because there are simply more qualified shepherds. In a one-pastor church, if you have a problem with the pastor, where do you go? Probably to the church down the street, if we're honest. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Even if you just don't connect with the pastor, I mean, what do you do? You kind of just, you don't have a pastor. You're out of luck. But with the plurality of elders, you have options. If you have a problem with one pastor, you can go talk to another one. Every sheep receives more shepherding because there are simply more qualified shepherds. And finally, a plurality of elders lightens the heavy burden of the shepherding. Just like Moses' father-in-law said to him, like, what are you doing? You can't bear this burden. The, the book of Hebrews teaches us that pastors will one day give an account to God himself for the souls that were under their care. Terrifying passage. It's a heavy burden that was never meant to be borne by one lone pastor. It was meant to be shouldered by a team of, of brother pastors working together, providing accountability for one another, encouraging one another, weeping together, praying together, shepherding one another. Even pastors need pastors. There's some alarming statistics coming out about pastors these days. Barna, there's a couple here that I, that I just want you to get a grasp of because I think this just exposes some things. 54% of pastors find the role of pastor overwhelming, which makes sense. 52% of pastors feel overworked and cannot meet their church's expectations. 70% of pastors do not have someone they consider to be a close friend. 70% of pastors. You think that's healthy? No. 57% of pastors feel fulfilled, fulfilled, but yet discouraged, stressed, and fatigued. 84% of pastors desire to have close fellowship with someone they can trust and confide with. So in my experience, too, those, those sound about accurate. But I, I, th 
think that a lot of these issues, they're not, they're not completely eliminated by a group of elders leading a church by a group of pastors, but they are significantly lessened. That's what these pastors are crying out for. I have no one to share the load. I have no one to talk to. I don't have anyone that's, that's in fellowship with me. Everyone just sees me as, as pastor. But you see, the biblical model actually tempers a lot of those problems. Jesus structured his church very intentionally. Each church, again, should have, should be led by a group of biblically qualified pastor elders. So, so that's what the Bible has to say about the plurality, about who should lead the church. A group of elders, a group of pastors. But what about the biblically qualified part? How, how do we know who's qualified to be an elder? How, how does a church know who to appoint as pastors? It's not going to do a church much good to have a plurality of terrible pastors. That would probably be worse. So again, the answer though is just found in the scriptures. Now there's two lists. There's, there's two places in scripture where Paul lists the qualifications for an elder, for an overseer, for a pastor. And, and they're very similar. One's in 1 Timothy 3 and one's in Titus chapter 1. But we're going to mainly look at 1 Timothy. So if you want to turn to 1 Timothy 3, we're going to be camping there for the rest of this morning. So turn, turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at verse 1 through 7. There's Bibles in the pew uh, in front of you if you don't have it. It's not going to be up on the screen because I want you to see this in the Word of God itself. It's a beautiful sound of pages turning. It's good. 1 Timothy 3. Verse 1 through 7. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. The saying is trustworthy. In other words, listen up, Timothy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." These are the God-breathed words of Holy Scripture. And the first phrase I want you to notice in this paragraph is in verse 2. This little phrase, must be. Because the task of an overseer, of a pastor, of an elder is so critical, so noble, Paul says, he must be these things. It is necessary, Paul is saying. This, these are not suggestions, Timothy. This is how it must be. If you're going to put someone in this role, this is what they have to be. These qualifications are non-negotiable. They're important for elders and deacons as well. They're not just... The office of pastor elder is not to be filled by someone just because they have attended the church for a long time. It's not to be given to someone just because they are old. It's not to be given to someone just because they know a lot about the Bible. It's not to be given to someone just because they have read the latest and greatest books on leadership. It's not to be given to someone just because they were an elder in another church once. It's not to be given to someone because they run a successful business. You won't find that in here. It's not, it's not to be given to someone because they have a degree from a seminary. 
It's not to be given to someone just because they give a lot of money to the church. It's not to be given to someone because they are a friend of the other elders or seem like a nice guy. Oh, the office of pastor elder must only be filled by people who are qualified according to the instructions given to us in God's word. This is how it must be, Paul says. So what are the qualifications? Well, they break down into two categories. Kind of like moral, spiritual, like character, and then abilities. So let's look at the character first. Look at verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach. This is at the top of the list in both Timothy and Titus. This is the first thing. Well, what does that mean? It means, first of all, it doesn't mean that he's sinless or perfect. It means, though, that this man fits the rest of the list. It means that someone couldn't come up to this list and say, Look, bud, you don't measure up. It means that no one can rightly point out any glaring issue in his life that would disqualify him. It means that he has a good reputation. If this means that if this, this man were appointed to be an elder, people would think, yeah, that makes sense. Not like, ooh, really, him? Didn't I like just see him screaming at his wife last week? You know, didn't I just hear him gossiping about someone last week? It, it means that he cannot be accused of anything serious in light of this list. So he's got to be above reproach. He also must be the husband of one wife. Or, or in the Greek, literally, it just says a one-woman man. A man qualified to be a pastor elder is to be faithful to his wife in every way. The church is Christ's bride. If you're not faithful to yours, you have no business pastoring his. He's to be sexually pure. No one should be able to accuse him of, of like a lecherous, wandering eye or inappropriate behavior. He treats women as sisters, not objects to gaze at. And his wife knows this and feels this. Pastor elder must be above reproach in his marriage and his sexuality. He must be, Paul says, a one woman man. And by the way, we're just blazing through these. We could say a lot more about each one of these. But let's continue. It says he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. And these are all kind of closely linked. This describes a man who is stable. He has balanced judgment. He's slow to speak and quick to listen. Again, there's, there's no glaring personal issue that would prohibit him from making good decisions. He's got to be emotionally and mentally stable. Because the weight of the task is immense. He has to have control over his desires and over himself. He's not rash, quick to make judgments. He's... He's not a fool. He's well-behaved, dignified, respectable. He knows how to conduct himself. In other words, he's a leader that people want to follow. He thinks before he speaks. Kind of get a mental picture of this type of person. Paul says sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. He also must be hospitable. A pastor must have a hospitable demeanor. He must be welcoming. He must be the kind of person that you feel comfortable just stopping by his house and chatting for a while. His house must always be open. As it's been said, an open home is the sign of an open heart. Isn't that the truth? He's the kind of person that never makes you feel like you're a burden. Shepherd of Hermas, is, it's an ancient Christian document from the second century, but I love how it, it talks about the role of elder. And it says this, An overseer must be hospitable. A man who gladly and at all times welcomes into his house the servants of God. It's a good way to describe it. 
pastor elder must be hospitable. Now we're going to kind of skip around a little bit to keep the theme here. But in verse 7, Paul says, he must be well thought of by outsiders. In other words, the unbelievers in his life must also have a good opinion of him. He can't live a double life, is what Paul's saying. He must be a man of integrity. He doesn't live one way at church and then live another way at his job. I mean, think of the damage done to a church who puts a man into leadership who's known in the community as, as a thief, as a dishonest businessman, or as a womanizer. Damage done to the name of Christ. The entire community would think very little of the church and very little of Christ by extension. So Paul says he must be a man of integrity and conviction. He lives the same way no matter where he is. And so even the unbelievers in his life, while they may disagree, they respect him. He's thought of well by them. So those are kind of all the positive character qualities that, that an elder must have. But Paul also lists some things he's not to be. So look back at verse 3. He must not be a drunkard. Kind of an old school word. In other words, some translations say not addicted to wine. In other words, he's not an alcoholic. He, he must not be someone who is characterized by his drinking habits. This doesn't mean, again, that an elder is never allowed to touch alcohol. Paul tells Timothy in this exact same letter to have a little wine for his stomach later. But an elder is to be self-controlled in this area. In every area. But Paul specifically mentions this area. He has a mastery over his desires. He's not addicted to alcohol, to getting drunk. He's not known as an alcoholic. He must not be a drunkard. He also must not be violent, but gentle. In other words, he's not a bully. He's not someone who physically or emotionally intimidates and abuses people to get their way. He's not a hothead. He's not someone that you're just always kind of like, man, when's he going to blow up? He's gentle. He's patient. He's sensible. He's lenient. One author put it this way. I love this. He has an air of sweet reasonableness to him. He is generous and gracious, not overly strict, full of mercy. Again, because he's the steward of Christ in this church. Are you, are you picking up on that? These are all just Christ-like qualities. And, and related to that, Paul continues, he must not be quarrelsome. Right? You know the type. You know people like this. They're, they're always looking for a fight. Always wanting to argue. They, they, they always say that they don't, but they love controversy. They're the kind of person who has a, a craving for verbal sparring. Contentious. Here's one of my favorite words. Pugnacious. Right? Like always just wanting to, wanting to get into it. An elder must not be this way. Must not be quarrelsome. He must be a peacemaker. A reconciler. The kind of person who uses his words to bring peace and reconciliation, not to constantly poke and prod people and pick fights. I mean, you think about it. In the role of pastor, in the role of elder, you're often attacked by others. A biblically qualified man is one who knows how to take it when he needs to and de-escalate situations when he needs to. He's not going to strike back. He's not going to trade blow for blow, whether verbally or physically. He must not be quarrelsome. He must not be a lover of money. He's not in it for the money. He's not greedy. Obviously, the reason is, Paul says later in the same letter, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
So it only makes sense that a pastor elder cannot be characterized this way. He's going to be handling the church's finances. He can't be characterized by love for money. Man, if churches would just obey this, there'd be a lot less pastors on TV, I'll tell you that much. And lastly, he must not be a recent convert. He needs to have experience living the Christian life. He needs to be seen for a while to be faithful and mature. Again, the burden is heavy, and so he needs to have a mature faith. So that's the moral, spiritual character of a pastor elder. Again, he doesn't have to be perfect, but what this is describing is a mature Christian. He has to be Christ-like. But he also needs to have two specific abilities. Look at verse 4. He must be a proven leader in his own household. Paul says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Simply, I mean, it's just a common sense. If a man can't shepherd his own family, he's not going to shepherd anyone else well. A man's family is his first ministry, the most basic and foundational testing ground of leadership. His leadership in the home, Paul says, should be dignified. In other words, he's not to be a dictator in the home, but a good leader. He's not to be passive in the home, but a leader. A man whose wife and children love him and follow his leadership, not out of fear, but out of love. And finally, he must be able to teach. Now, the qualifications for deacons and elders are actually very similar, but this is, a, this is one of the main differences. He must hold to, teach, and defend historic, orthodox, biblical doctrine. As we'll see next week, a major part of the role of pastor and elder is feeding the flock of God, the Word of God. Therefore, a qualified elder is a man who knows the Scriptures, who is ready and willing to teach them, and who is able to teach them well. This is how elders lead. Paul says in Acts 20 that the church is constantly surrounded by fierce wolves trying to deceive and devour the sheep. And so a pastor, as a shepherd, must be firmly rooted in the Scriptures so that he can guard against the wolves, against false teaching. He must be able to to teach sound doctrine and gently bring back the sheep when they stray off into false teaching. He must be able to defend the doctrines of the faith against those who would attack it. Paul says it this way in Titus 1.9. I love this. He says, speaking of the qualifications, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Pastor elder who doesn't know and love the scriptures is useless in his role. He can't lead or protect the flock. So so that is a brief description of, of what the churches are to look like and of what the pastor elders are supposed to look like. We need a we need a plurality of biblically qualified shepherds serving alongside one another. If we want God to bless our church, we've got to structure it like he says to. And so for the, for the Christian here today, for the believer in Christ here today, you're not off the hook of this either if you're not an elder. You, you may have been picking this up as we went along, but everything that elders are called to is also commanded in other parts of Scripture of every believer. The, the difference isn't that elders are like at another level or some secret special level. The difference is that they've just been mature and tested. They've grown and been proven. So all of us are called to the standard. These are just simply Christ-like qualities. Every single one of these is commanded of us in other places. 
This is what everyone should aspire to. This is what everyone is called to. Whether you hold a, a title or an office or not. We are all called to pursue holiness. We're all called to pursue Christ-likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, we can all grow in our faith. We can successfully conquer our sins and we can grow into maturity together. That is the, the, one of the purposes of the church. And men, we need more shepherds. We, we need men who fit this description. Paul says it's a noble thing to desire this role. And I want to ask you, is the Holy Spirit calling you to this? Pray about it. And if you look at this list and you say, you know what, I, I, I have a desire towards this. I feel like God is, is, is putting that on my heart, but I, I don't fit these qualifications. Grow towards it. Get some brothers alongside you and say, look, I think... God's calling me this, but I have some growing to do. We all have growing to do. That's okay. Train towards it. Serve God in this way. Be faithful to his call on your life. This is something you desire. Pray about it. Talk, talk to Dustin about it. Talk to someone else about it. Something not to take lightly. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. It's your first time in church. Or you've been coming for a while, but you just don't really believe this is kind of irrelevant to you because you are outside of the church. You are not a part of the body of Christ if your faith is not in Christ. In fact, the Bible says that outside of Christ, you stand condemned in your sin before a holy and almighty God. Everyone does. But, but the good news is, and this, this entire series about the church declares the news that Christ has opened up a way to fellowship with God, even though we are sinful. Like the song said, even, even though we have tons of sins, His mercy is more. And we see that mercy in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Himself, who lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners on the cross, and was resurrected from the dead in power. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He says, if you will come to me in faith, you will repent from your sins and turn and trust me, all of your sins will be wiped away. I will bring you into my body. I will bring you into my family. Church, you will have eternal life forever. I invite you to that this morning. If, you, if, if your faith is not in Christ, why wait? Why spend another day with the wrath of God abiding on you? Life is offered to you in the name of Christ. So cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ today. Don't wait. In conclusion, because the church's mission is absolutely critical to the spread of the gospel, we have to take these things seriously. This isn't something to play around with. The Del Cerro Baptist Church is not Pastor Dustin's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not the committee's church. It is the church of Christ. He is the head and the authority, and so we must be faithful to his words. For everything that we do here, we must look to the word of God. We must look to it for the offices of the church, for the qualifications of the officers. The church's mission is absolutely critical to the spread of the gospel. And so because of this, Satan hates the mission of the church. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the church. In fact, Peter tells us 
that he's prowling around like a lion seeking to devour stray sheep. How Satan must love it when a church appoints unqualified shepherds to protect its people. How he must love it when when a church, instead of appointing a group of pastors to protect its people, just has one. How much easier it is to take out one person than a group of men standing arm in arm. Brothers and sisters, let's be faithful to God's word as we joyfully seek to glorify him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you...